welcome to Various Things. I'm Gary Lama. Today's interview is with Nathan Stickler. Nathan is a punk, a cook, and a rural, working-class white southerner living in the city here in Richmond, Virginia. For a while, you could find him working as a flying brick during open hours, and nowadays working with the local chapter of Jericho, a group working to help support political prisoners inside the United States. I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation as much as I did talking with him. This interview is split into six parts. This is part one. Enjoy. How would you describe what it is that you do? I mean, I guess I guess the typical term is like uh, organizing or community organizing, but I, I, w- I would hesitate to call myself a community organizer. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know. Those are loaded terms. I just, I tend to like um, say that I'm interested in politics when, when you know, randos ask me. Okay. Um, and by politics, you're you're meaning not necessarily in the voting kind. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I mean, obviously, I pay attention to that because mm-hmm. it, uh, it affects things. Um, but I mean, yeah, politics in, in the in the larger, deeper sense. Um, you know. Um, I don't know, the way that people and groups of people relate to each other, I guess. Okay. Um, when did you get into that? Like, when did you kind of find a, sounds like you have a consciousness for it. When did you tap into that or realize you had that? Um, I was kind of always raised to be conscious of current events and what was going on in the world around me. Um, uh-huh. That's kind of hard um, to put my finger on. I just, like... I realized the politics of punk very early on, um, you know, like being bullied, being like, uh, you know, a kid that like didn't have the money to have the right clothes, um, and things like that, you know, and, and like getting immediately picked on for my sort of like lack of being able to blend in with masculinity as well as, uh, as well as my like sort of, you know, I mean, even, even a lot of kids, you know, that picked on me were, were uh, they themselves probably, like, poorer than me. But, right. Or at least, like, lived, you know, in a trailer or something rather than, like, a house, which I lived in a house. Um, but, like, I was able to live in a house because my parents, you know, spent their money on the house and not, like, making us look like we weren't broke all the time. Right. Um, which can make a big difference sometimes. Um, and, like, since I looked like I was, you know, not middle class or something, um, I got picked on for it. So, like, from very early on, and then when I heard about punk, it was, like, like my cousin was really into it. He was, like, 10 years older than me. And, um, and it became a way to just, like, lash back a little bit, you know. I call that as, I mean, I don't know if I called it political at the time, but it was definitely, like, me being like, I remember having conversations when I was like 12 with like other friends being like, one of these days all the freaks are going to like take over or some shit like that, you know, like <laughs> conversation, but still like, I mean, I, I feel like that was, that was a consciousness, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's maybe typical of childhood. There's this 
thing where kids like try to push each other to assimilate and they can tell for some reason when there's some, like some kind of resistance. But yeah. I think that forces a person at, at some level to, when they're on that other end of it, like you were, um, to maybe kind of start searching for reasons why they're there, maybe. Um, maybe examine things a little bit better. Um, yeah. So when you got into, well, I guess for context, where did you grow up? Uh, Lancaster County, Virginia. Uh, it's on the northern neck. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. Um, so is that kind of like a rural era, or is it? Uh, it's very rural. Okay. Um, my, uh, I only had we only had one high school, one middle school, one primary school for the entire county, and my graduating class, um, my senior year was ninety eight kids. Wow, wow, yeah. that's really small. <laughs> um, yeah. so how did you get like exposed to punk in such a small community? Uh, like I said, my cousin uh, grew up near Baltimore. Uh huh. So when I he was really into it. Um, and he was he was significantly older though. Um, so I guess the people that more directly introduced me to that stuff um, were kids that were maybe two or three years older than me. Like when I was a freshman in high school, they were seniors, like that kind of thing. Um, and and you know, like I don't I don't know about bigger schools, but um, in that small rural community, um, in those kinds of schools, like there wasn't as much tension between like seniors and freshmen, at least that like is portrayed in the movies. Mm -hmm. um, because most of us at least knew each other's families for most of our lives. Um, so that sort of, like, weird tension didn't exist. It was like there were tensions between families that were long-lasting. Mm. Um, so, like, there there were, you know, all the, like, weirdo, um, you know, at least to the, the established families of that area, all the, all the weirdo, like, scumbag families and kids all knew each other already. From the time we were very young, even if we weren't in the same grades, um, so you know, like there were there were kids a little like a little bit older than me that were into it that kind of introduced me to some stuff, I guess. Mm -hmm. And and also like people coming in, like you know, the occasional weirdo that moved here or moved there from like a bigger area. One thing I've noticed in talking to people from smaller towns is that sometimes there's less difference in how people perceive race in those towns. And other times it's it's way worse. It's very polarized. Uh, what what was your experience with race in that town growing up? Um it's interesting, you know, like uh I remember interacting with and having my my high school was about probably about sixty percent black. Oh, okay. Um, and See, uh, in, in my town, like, uh, there were wealthy whites, mm. um, and most of them had a well-established uh, um, private schools that a lot of families still use that were basically the result of, like, desegregation. Right. Um, so you still had some remnants of that uh, in terms of, like, um, there were there were harsh rivalries between the the public school and the private schools in the area, um, even even among the white kids. So you had like this interesting interaction of like I remember having you know black friends like come over to my house um, until I was about somewhere in like the twelve to fourteen range, mm -hmm. um, 
And then suddenly my friends got a lot wider because people started, there was like the, the, the race factor became much more important to the kids. Uh. Um, you know, and like you say, that push to assimilate. Um, and so, so with race, like it, it sort of seemed like if you were a kid in that area, you had kind of like two options available to you. If you were white, you hung out with the good old boys. If you were black, you hung out with like people that were like, you know, your, your black friends. Right. Um, and like, if you didn't fit into either one of those categories, you probably hung out with us. Um, okay. so we had a lot, we had a lot of mixed friends and a lot of, um, or just like the occasional, um, person that just didn't fit with like what was expected of either the, the white good old boys or like the, the, like the normal or like predominantly like predominant culture of like the black youth mm-hmm. there. Um, so I feel like, you know, we had a rather diverse group of friends, but a lot of it was just sort of, like, incidental. Ah, uh, yeah. You know, because we were just, like, weirdos that didn't fit into, like, the predominant... Right, it was, like, the outcasts. Um, yeah, basically. I mean, but as far as race, I mean, there was racial tension there. I remember um, it would flare up. Uh, on occasion, if there was a conflict between a black person and a white person, even even if the the actual conflict itself between the two individuals didn't really have much to do with race, um, mm-hmm. uh, it became it very quickly became a race issue because of the sort of friends getting behind each other and then you know escalating from there. Yeah, so stupid, and then that you know. It's just, wow. I, 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 and to, I, there were there were uh, race racial conflicts um, in the wake of the Martin Luther King um, assassination, and I've only heard stories of that from older folks in the county, and I have not been able to find much information on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done a little bit of research, but apparent but the way they tell it um, is that after Martin Luther King was shot and riots were spreading across the country, um, uh, they like at least for a little while, shut down the only road into the county at the time um, because uh, carloads of, like, black youth and white youth were, like, kind of roaming around, like, shooting at each other. Jesus. That's, I mean, you know, those stories get exaggerated, so I'm not sure how uh, factually accurate some of those things are, but something definitely happened, you know. And that concludes part one of our six-part interview with Nathan Stickle. All of our interviews are available at variousthings.org. This interview is recorded on October 3rd, 2014. two of our six-part interview with Nathan Stickle. Enjoy. When you were coming up through there, at what point did you realize that, like, this... this kind of, like... When did you, do you think, develop, like, a greater consciousness for, like, 
not only do you not fit in, but like the world is also kind of causing others problems as well. I'm not sure if I'm wording that right. Like, I guess when uh, did you connect I, to like an idea of like the world needs to be changed or something? You know what I mean? Like, well, uh, my parents were hippies. Mm-hmm. Um, so they kind of always raised me with a little bit of that idea. Okay. Uh, they weren't really, um, but my dad, my dad is, you know, kind of through and through working class. Um, and, you know, I, I just remember conversations he would have even when I was very young about just like how much he hates entitled rich people. And, he, he, you know, he's very class conscious um, mm-hmm. in, in terms of like just being conscious of his position. Um, I, I wouldn't say he's, an activist who, like, you know, is, like, trying to bring the working revolution or something, but, like, he, he definitely was, like, uh, yeah, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer, I'm on the poorer side, um, always have been, probably always will be, um, I'm just trying to carve out my little piece of the world to, like, you know, get away from it, basically. I mean, he had the whole dropout attitude. Right. Um, but, I mean, yeah, I mean, he grew up poor. You know, he, he started, you know, his dad was, like, a fucked-up abusive alcoholic that um, couldn't hold down a job after a certain, after he, my dad was a certain age. And uh, so, I mean, he started working at 14 to help his mom pay the rent, you know. And he's, he's very conscious of that. He, he hated authority. He hates, he hates cops. Um so I, I think my dad was a big influence on that, for sure, um, that sort of general anti-establishment attitude. And my mom is just, like, a little bit more of a sweetheart. But um, I remember I remember just a couple of years ago talking about some friends that got snitched on and, like, ended up going to jail because over, like, a drug deal thing. And my mom, <laughs> my mom, I've never heard her say something, like, kind of so, like, uh, blunt. But right. she, like... She's like, oh, yeah, we had we had a friend who, like, snitched on some of our friends that were selling weed, like, back when we were younger. Um, and, like, we, you know, we told him to get lost. And some of our friends still, you know, years later, we went to, they went to some reunion or something. I don't remember what it was. And, um, and he was there, and they were like, I can't believe someone actually called him to come. <laughs> wow. They were like, they were like you're, you're the reason that our friends, like, spent years in prison over weed and she was like i don't really understand she's because she's a teacher and mm-hmm. she was like she's like we're we're constantly telling kids telling kids not to tattle not to tattle not to tattle and then and then as soon as they're adults we're like giving them incentives to rat each other out like that doesn't she's like, it doesn't make sense to her she was she was really like i can't i would never be friends with a snitch like how could you trust that person ever wow <laughs> i'm really amazing. upset about it um yeah, but uh, it surprised me a little bit, but it, it was it was cool. Um, so at some point you moved to Richmond. Was that for school or? No, I wanted to get out of my small town. My my best friend at the time was going to VCU and needed a roommate. So okay, yeah, I, I didn't move until I was about uh, twenty two. Oh wow! Yeah, I I moved in two thousand nine. Um, like March of 2009. So I've been here for over five years, five and a half years, something like that. So what did you think coming into Richmond, coming from that town, growing up in that town and seeing how things were there? Like, how did you perceive Richmond initially? 
Well, I was uh, fairly familiar with Richmond already to some degree mm-hmm. um, because of like, coming to shows and stuff. Okay. Lancaster's only like an hour and 15 minutes from Richmond. So, um, you know, if you're punk and you're in a small town and you want to go see punk shows, you gotta, you got to travel. Um, so, I don't know. I mean, I thought it was really cool. Um, I think it took me a really long time to register just how different it really is. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, surface level, it's just like there's a lot more people and there's like people with common interests to me and, and that's really great and I'm really excited about that. Um, and there's so much to do all the time and then, uh, you know, you start to realize how that affects people and the way that they interact with each other as well as like their, themselves and like I, I, I don't think I'd be ready to live in a small town for a very, very long time uh, but I definitely think that the city, even a small city like Richmond has an effect on the psyche of people um, and it's something that I'm only starting to realize in the last couple of years um, mm-hmm. I, I mean, how much it's affected me my, and my anxiety is sky high I never used to have such large problems with anxiety and I mean some of, the, some of that's uh, definitely part of, like, other life events that have been happening to me in the last few years. But um, but I definitely, like, I just recently moved to Fulton Hill out on the edge of the city, and it's a lot quieter, and, like, it feels more like the country. Um, it's very small county feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I meet, like, I could feel the I've only been here a month, and I, I feel better anxiety-wise. Do you think it's, like, mechanical, like, noise and bustle, or is it, like... I think it's all of it. Really? You know, like, I think it's a combination of all of it. I think it's the noise, it's the lights, it's, um... And, I mean, the light thing has definitely been, like, scientifically studied to, like, how it affects your brain. With, like, Um, the yellow sulfur lights and all that? Yeah, not just that, but just having, um... We're not not meant to be, like, you know, our, our, like, dopamine levels and stuff react to the light. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so, like, when we're constantly around lights, you know, with the advent of electricity and stuff, like, it's fucking with our our ability to be on a consistent cycle with, like, the daytime. You know? Yeah. Oh, yeah, um, definitely. Which, which, you know, has this, like, snowball effect onto, like, other things. Right. Um, uh, but, I mean, not just that, but, like, I've noticed, like, when friends have conflicts, a lot of times... The, the friendship doesn't last, which and when I grew up, you know, I I had such, sometimes, you know, it's overwhelming the histories you have with people in small towns because you just know everybody's little dirty secrets and it, everyone knows everything and you can't, you feel like you can't escape, you know, maybe a time that you fucked up in the past mm-hmm. um, or even just not a time that you fucked up, but a person interpreted it as, as being fucked up, but it was like a, you know a conflict that happens with people. Um, and so that can be overwhelming in a small town, but here it's like, it sometimes it feels like people just decide it's not worth it to try and work through any sort of conflict because, of that. you know, mm-hmm. there's more people I can hang out with, so whatever. You know now, what I mean? do, like, do you think that's the city, or do you think it might also be because they came from not small towns, and so they're used to just being like, oh, well, there's 100,000 people here. I can just pick someone else. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's part of it. I, I think I've noticed that difference in uh, people that I know that grew up in a city or, like, more suburban area to, mm-hmm. to like, people that grew up in the country. I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that I'm finding myself living now with roommates that all grew up in the country and we all have very similar feelings about why we want to live out here and, like, have had similar issues with all of our different friendships and, like, conflicts. 
Yeah. Um, like we all, we, we all interact with people in a similar way and, and some of that personality for sure, but some of it's, I think some of it has to do with like growing up in the country. We're all very content to just sit quietly and not have to like go out to the bar to feel like we're, we're having a good time or enjoying ourselves. Well, it's, it's weird. This interesting di- there's like this interesting dichotomy between cities and, and the country, and and you kind of touched on it a little bit. In that, yeah, you you have like less privacy in the country because everyone kind of knows your own business. Yeah. But in the city, you kind of demand anonymity, but you're in up up in everyone's like you have less personal space. It's this yeah. weird like splits you're like interacting with people more probably in the city but not really maybe at a meaningful level over time um and so you get these weird city protective mechanisms of like you know you can be standing a foot from somebody you know at a bus or at a bus on a bus or in a show and that's fine but you wouldn't share (laughs) anything remotely Maybe yeah. useful of information about yourself with them. It's it's a weird talk to them. Yeah, it's a weird disassociative thing that I I think happens in people. And um, yeah, I've thought about that. I'm not sure if it's like a bad. I mean, usually disassociation is pretty bad. So <laughs> I think that might also play into like maybe some of the stuff. Um, that you might experience coming from a place that's a little more open. And that concludes part two of our six-part interview with Nathan Stickle. All of our interviews are available at variousthings.org. This interview is recorded on October 3rd, 2014. things. This is part three of our six-part interview with Nathan Stable. Enjoy. When did you get involved in um, organizing? Um, I guess when I threw myself into it was as soon as I moved to Richmond. Um, but before that, you know, I, I was involved with things, you know, in the community. Right. Um, I helped organize shows occasionally. Um, I, uh, organized a couple of really, really free markets before I moved to Richmond once I had heard of what those were. Um, um, but for the most part, you know, I, uh, I didn't really, I, I wouldn't consider me having to start it. Have started organizing until I moved to Richmond. Were you like immediately really excited about doing that, or um, or was it just kind of more of a slow growth thing? Oh, I uh, when I figured out that I was probably going to move to Richmond, I began researching really hard about uh, where to get involved. I was like, that was a big motivator for me. Um, I was just sick of sick of being conscious of all these things and not feeling like I was doing anything about. Mm-hmm. Um, other than just like paying attention, um, you know, I was starting to feel very like just 
bummed about the world because, you know, there was all these things that I hated and that I felt bad about. Right. Felt like needed to change, um, but felt no outlet to, you know, even begin to like help, even even just talk to other people about it. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. there there were by the time I left my hometown, uh, most of my friends were already gone. And most of them didn't even really like care that much about that kind of stuff. Um but like at that point I was feeling completely isolated. Um so I mean I was I was stoked. I threw myself into it you know. Hell I, I actually I went to a before the wing nut, like Mo had this place on Montrose, um with uh you know, some other friends that now I'm I'm friends with now and I remember I remember coming to a cookout because I had met I met a couple of folks, including Mo, at a really really free market like a few months before mm-hmm. uh, ever moving, um, and and they like invited me to this cookout they were having, and I like came up before I even moved and got to know people and was like, yeah, I'm moving here in two weeks, you know. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I that my introduction to Richmond in general was um, through organizing and activism and. Anarcho-punks. When you first got here, like, what was the uh, what was the first thing you started working on? Uh, bombs. Okay. Thing. Had you ever done that before you got here? No. Uh, I usually worked on Sundays, so I could never make. I always wanted to make it. I would. I would come to really, really free markets though for for like probably about six months almost before I moved. And then from there, I know you moved into the flying brick and started doing that. And that seemed to be a big part of what you did for a while. Um, how did you get involved with that? Um, I met Alice himself who lived there at the time, mm-hmm. uh, uh, before I moved to Richmond. Um, and then like, uh, the first time I ever went to the brick was for a birthday party, like about a week or two after I moved to the city. Mm-hmm. And I met a lot of people that I'm still, pretty good friends with now um and yeah i mean it was it was like uh at the time all himself and air melinda cortez were probably doing the bulk of the work at the brick um and uh i got to know them and you know helped occasionally they, they weren't ready to open it yet or like it was in it was on hiatus they were like kind of getting some stuff reorganized mm-hmm. um and you know I, I i remember occasionally coming by to help uh you know sort through some things um and then remember coming to the first interest meetings and like helping to, you know, and like really throwing myself in after that point, um, after open hours started again. Before I moved in, I was I was already working with the collective that was sort of forming to run the library. Right. Uh, and then uh, when Air Melinda was moving out um, to move on to other things, um, she and Allison both recommended to the house basically that I be the one to take Air Melinda's room. Um, and people were cool with it. So, um, what do you think the importance of something like the flying brick is? Um, I think it's vital that we have physical spaces that we control. Um, you know, the best we can anyway. Uh, control is kind of relative, but um, where we can meet people and each other face to face and have conversations and work out of, you know, a space to work with supplies, um, with materials, you know resources, you know, like shared resources, important, you know, more importantly. 
I think social media is great. I think the Internet's great for a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've noticed even just in my time with organizing and politics, and increasingly I'm, I can't seem to – and part of this is like my detachment with the scene or whatever right now. Mm-hmm. But I can't seem to get anyone to sit down and discuss an article in person to save my fucking life. And <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I mean, every time people will discuss it over a Facebook thread for hours, you know, and get stressed out because they're misinterpreting someone's word or someone, you know, the the sort of like lack of face to faceness allows people to like everyone feels like they need to make a grandstand. I mean, there's this, there's almost this incentive to like shut people down um, and and have like the most strong, best-worded opinion mm-hmm. so that you get all the likes on your comment and get right. validated, right? Yeah. Um, instead of, like, having a real conversation with a person, half the time, half the time I see people speaking to each other that I know see each other in real life that would never speak to each other that way. And that's not, like, it's not that I, like, want to be nice all the time. I, I'm totally comfortable not being nice. Right. You know? But, like, but, you know, I'm... I'm I've got myself, like, I'm speaking from myself, you know, like, where um, I, I look back at a conversation I had over the internet, like, I would never say that to someone in real life, like, why did I do that? You know what I mean? And that, and that totally made the conversation antagonistic instead of, like, any sort of, like, productive, like, we're all moving to an understanding. And, and obviously, obviously I'm not advocating that we, um, go out of our way to come with an understanding with, like, white supremacists or something. Right. I'm not trying to be, like, a hippie about it. And, and like, um, if we just all, like, talk to each other, eventually we'd all come to an understanding and everything, you know, there'd be peace on Earth. Like, that's that's <laughs> obviously horseshit. I'm, uh, right. But, but well, I'm talking about our comrades, people we work with on, on a regular basis, you know, or at least have to interact with on a regular basis, you know. Like, well, there's there's a certain, you know, there's a disconnect to social media, and I think it's actually, I, I think there's like a context that people operate in social media with, and however they've been brought up to experience that is going to affect the difference between that and how they operate in real life. Yeah. Um, like, I remember when I was young, the thing was BB, like BBS boards, like bulletin boards, <laughs> and they're like, you'd log on this dude's server and talk and immediately it was like, I was used to, you know, face to face and someone would talk shit and you'd be like, okay, let's go outside. Um, and then all of a sudden you're like dealing with all these people. And even then, like, it was just like people just talking all this shit. And you're just like, I mean, the internet was two years old at this point, like really. And people are just already like, (laughs) And going throat to throat and I'm thinking like does this mean that you know I need to fucking be ready to fight these guys the next time I see them you know and no they just compartmentalized it but I couldn't figure it out um, yeah yeah it's a very dehumanizing thing and it sucks because sometimes it can be really humanizing like I know on like survivor support groups and shit like that like it could be a really good thing you know because it's like hey I'm isolated I need to connect with other people <laughs> And so it can be I mean, that's how, that's how I got into deeper into politics, and how I got deeper into punk, being like a small town kid, you know? Right. But like, but so much of that was through the internet. I was able to connect to things that I would never have been able to connect to before. 
Yeah. And, but and then it's also, you know, it's also that side too, that, that you're, you're talking about there where people are like, I don't know. I, I think the, I think the idea of like being able to like things is inherently a bad idea. Like, like on, on the internet, <laughs> you know, like the statistic analytical, like, status part of it i think i think that might contribute at some level to some weird um i mean there's definitely some kind of like ego validation thing that's happening a lot on the internet that just, that's exactly what it is because um and i think that it's something that like to some degree is inherent in that whole dynamic yeah because i find myself doing it i never i never have been someone that thought of myself as like constantly looking for other people's approval mm. You know what I mean? I, I got into punk because, like, I was so not getting anyone's approval that I wanted to, like, you know, almost literally spit in their face. Right. And gain their disapproval. You know right. what I mean? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Um, and, and I still find myself being like, oh, I didn't get, I didn't get many likes on that. I wonder what people, uh, people don't like that. You know what I mean? And I start to, like, get, like, weirded out by it. Like, well, it's, it's, it's the so system. Scary. It's, you, you can't fight it. Like, it, like, it's, it's such an inherent quality of the system that, like, I don't know. It's it's like when I talk to a friend and they're like, yeah, I want to be a, a teacher when I grow up. And I'm like, why? And they're like, because there's no good teachers. And I'm like, a lot of that's systemic. You know what I mean? Like a lot of it's like if you actually get to the point where you're going to become a teacher, there's very few people who cannot turn into that thing that they were against yeah. because it there's so much stuff you have to do, whether it's that now you have to work a shitty job to pay back your school loans or, um, you know, like people want to become a cop to help the community. Right. Exactly. It's like, yeah, that's a great idea. I'd love to have more people that don't just shoot on impulse being a cop, but (laughs) it just doesn't work out that way. (laughs) It's a bit of an oversimplified extreme example, but, uh, but yeah. I mean, when when you're taking orders from the top, whether you're a teacher or whether you're a cop or whether, you know, whatever, like, um, you know, there's only a certain amount you can do to, like, buck those orders right. that result you in being taken out of that position. Yeah. Like, I mean, my mom knows that firsthand as a teacher, you know? Like, mm-hmm. she retired early because she just couldn't take it anymore. Yeah. You know, like, she was like, and she was just teaching pre-K. Like, just how broken, especially being, like, such a pre-K in my hometown is, like, all poor kids with, like, you know, at the age of three or four already having tons of trauma, you know, like, stuff that, stuff that, like, because their parents, you know, maybe their parents are just overworked and just can't be around because they're working three jobs, you know? Mm-hmm. That usually that comes with like them having to try feeling like they have to deal with it by some sort of drug or alcohol abuse, and which then leads to other cycles of like physical and emotional abuse to kids, like um, and that whole cycle, you know, like that is like a, such a, you know in, in a lot of ways a cliche. Like, um, my mom has to deal with that. that that's basically what pre-K teachers do in this country, and I and I don't think people realize that. My mom spent most of her time just trying to calm kids down, not teaching them anything. Wow. Like, um, you know, it's, it's just fucked up, man. Like, so fucked up. Like, the story she would tell, of, and hell, like, about 
the school is so afraid because of, you know no child left behind and thank thank Bush for that. Um, right. Uh, there's my my schools that I went to are so afraid of losing accreditation. Mm-hmm. They like they were putting kids that were obviously special needs kids, and and obviously there's a lot of fucked up things with the special needs programs in our schools or whatever. But like obviously kids that my mom does not have the skills, and she knows it. She would talk about it. She does not have the skills to handle some of those kids that she would get that have, you know, not even sure what's what's going on with them, whether it's just extreme trauma or whether it's something else that's like, you know, like a learning disability of some kind. Right. Um, and she, she would get so angry because she's worried about those kids and also, like, those kids are disrupting the sort of learning environment that she's trying to create for the rest of the class. Um, and and literally no one is, people are just being like, well, just pass them. Like, we, we can't put them in special needs because, like, um, you know, that would mean that we have more kids in special needs and that's, like, not statistically good for us. And Jesus. we also need these kids to pass because otherwise we risk our accreditation and then we risk our funding. You know, and so it's even all the way up to the top where the administration is, like, really easy to see as the bad guy, and, and and a lot of times they definitely are. I'm not trying to, like, be an apologist for, like, administrators and, like, bureaucrats, but, like, they're in a position, too, where they're like, well, if if we don't pass these kids, we don't get funding, and so our schools get even worse. Yeah. You know? And it's just like... Jesus. I mean, you, you can't win, you know? Like, no matter what position you're in, you can't win. And it's just getting worse. And I don't think people really realize the extent, at least not in our age groups, most of us don't have kids in the school system. Either right. we just have or we don't have kids at all. And so, like, we haven't learned yet that, like, just how fucked it is. Like, it's, it's totally fucked. And that concludes part three of our six-part interview with Nathan Stickle. All of our interviews are available at variousthings.org. This interview was recorded on October 3rd, 2014. six-part interview with Nathan Stickle. Enjoy. I think I think life to a certain extent is learning how much more fucked things are as you get older. <laughs> and hopefully you don't stop caring by that time, you know what I mean? Like that's 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 the big thing. Free overload. I don't really blame people for just like Oh no, me neither. Like, yeah. a blind eye because it's it sensory overload. Like, what are you What are you supposed to do about it? You know. Yeah. Like I was just having a stupid Facebook conversation today about voting. You know. Um. I, I don't. <clears throat> I'm not someone who's like a self righteous like anarchist who like thinks I need a fucking cookie for not voting. Like uh, people do what they feel they need to do, whatever. Um. But like. I, the one thing I'm frustrated about the voting conversation is, like, how can we never talk about why large swaths of, like, the population aren't voting? 
because the only time I ever see it mentioned is when is people like are just like, well, people don't care. They're apathetic. They, they're lazy. That's totally disingenuous. That's not what we should be doing as organizers, A. Mm-hmm. And B, like, that's, that's not true. And also, even if these people are so apathetic and don't care about anything, there's a reason for that. Why yeah. is that? How come right. we can't? Like, I would love if, if, I would be okay with the voting spectacle if there was a significant conversation about, like, how come in supposedly the most democratic country in the world, which obviously I don't agree with, but how, given that, how come 60 to 70% of the population doesn't vote? Why? There's a reason for that, and it's not because the masses are just a bunch of lazy assholes. That's no. so deep liberal elitism. Get done with that. Why Why is that? There's a reason. Let's talk about it. You know, like, I'm just, I'm sick of this, like, it, the, the conversation about, we could have radical conversations about elections. We really could. But we're so afraid anything but talk about, well, Democrats are better than Republicans, so we just have to make sure they get in because they're friendlier and, like, we could break them easier because they're just not as organizing. Like, you know what I mean? Like, whatever the argument might be, like, it's it's all out of, it's, it's out of fear. Things are getting worse. Things are getting worse. Well, in my opinion, Democrats or Republicans, it's not going to make it slow down or get any better. Mm-hmm. Shouldn't Obama have proved that? He's bombing yeah. the about Bush, like in his unjust wars, and and right now Obama is bombing seven fucking countries. Seven. Yeah. Like he's deported more people than any other president in the history of the United States, and we're still talking about well, the Democrats are better. And, yeah, and, and it, I've been told that like not voting is privileged. It, it, to me, it's privileged to ignore the fact that there are three million people being deported. Yeah by a, a supposedly progressive president. Like, I don't know. I mean, that's a bit of a tangent, but, like, we're scared of things getting worse. And that's okay. We we It's okay to be scared. You know, and we can talk about that. But let's not pretend that our visceral, visceral reactions to things aren't because we're not scared. And don't... don't you know, flaunt it as a strategy. Uh, we're scared. It's okay to be scared. Like, it, the, the scared and there's just no theoretical solution or that the solution... We don't know what to do about it. As, as much as we think we do, we don't know what to do about it. I'm saying that as, like, someone who is, who is an anarchist and I don't really know what to do about it. When, I, when are, like, conscious people going to, like, get off their high horses and admit that they don't fucking have all the answers? I mean, to me, I mean, at least seeing the way that Obama's acting, it's becoming more pre- uh, prevalent or more um, obvious that it's more of a machine right now. Um, and there's things working that just don't really seem to um, have any inkling of stopping. And that's pretty disenfranchising because then you're just like, well, what the fuck are we electing people for? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like if if they can't, we, you know, we're supposed to elect people to steer this thing. And, you know, maybe the momentum behind it is is such that. Um, isn't, isn't that like 
I don't know, to me, if we had that conversation, mm-hmm. we have that conversation more than just among, like, you and me. Like, right. Like, that are, like, radically conscious in one way or another. Um, like, if we're talking about, like, engaging with the electoral spectacle, I'm all for it. Like, I think that that's really important. Um, I think we just need to do it in a way that's not, you know, it, it feels like, this is what it feels like to me every every two years when Congress is getting elected, every four years when the president is getting elected. Um, okay. It feels like we join up with the liberals to push back the, the right-wing tide, and yet the right has never been stronger in the last 20 years. Right. You know what I mean? Like, um, and, and every time we join up with these liberals, it's to push back the right-wing tide. And have we actually done that? You know, like, why why are we radical? Why are we putting ourselves apart from, like, this two-party system, which I don't think many, you know, left activists in general would would, would disagree that they, they, they don't like either party, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, even if you consider yourself just, like, a super liberal or something, you know what I mean? Like, you, you there's no one that would disagree that the Democrats are a horse shit sham. You know, Bill Maher brought up a good point in that, and I mean, it's a good point in that it was a good thing to think about, I mean, I thought, but it, I don't know if it was really rightly placed, but he had said, the crazy people on the Republican side are fully invested in the government, they're the Tea Party, and they are acting political will upon their representatives, and the Occupy people were sitting in a park. And his his criticism was that if the Occupy people had been engaging the political apparatus the same way that the extremists on the right were, that they're you know you're basically shifting the balance, like like you know the median or the or the medium of a conversation is what is the difference between the extreme sides. What I would say is, like, I would I would critique Occupy very much, um, is that uh, one thing that they did not do enough of is, dis- like, I think we should, we need to engage with the system. I, I would agree on that point. Mm-hmm. I would I would disagree with how we do it. Um, yeah. I think we need to disrupt it. We need to stop it from functioning. We need to show it for what it is. Um, and that means conflict. That means risk. That means struggle. And a lot of us don't want to risk that. You know, uh, a lot of us, if we're if we're already marginalized or disenfranchised, don't feel like those of us with more privilege are going to stand behind them if they do that. So they're not doing it. And then, um, and those of us that are privileged don't feel like feel like we'll be, you know, sort of the the lone person that stands up and gets cut down. You know, mm-hmm. um, when we realize that if we act together and support each other, and that doesn't always mean agreeing. You know, um, I mean, I, and I mean, I think the conversation about pacifism and nonviolence has, has helped to affect this, but it's, it's not the sole thing to blame. This this whole life, there's there's a counterinsurgency strategy that's you know in the counterinsurgency manuals about PR and splitting protest movements into where people are like fighting over who gets to be the good protester and who gets to be the bad protester. Right. Who gets to be legitimate and who gets to be criminal. 
And we saw that with Occupy. As soon as people started to really disrupt what was happening, um, and, you know, such as the black block mm. or people doing blockades, whatever the case might have been, you immediately saw that narrative of coming out, like, of arguing that all these people are promoting violence. I, we, we, got, we got yelled at and told that we're trying to promote violence by marching in the street. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I, I have plenty of respect for people that are committed to nonviolence tactically. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's Lisa Fithian is, like, an amazing, like, nonviolent direct action trainer. Um, she's been doing it for years. I've had the pleasure of meeting her. She's amazing, like, lady anarchist that is committed to nonviolence. And, like, I don't agree with her on that, but, like, she has never once spoken out against the Black Bloc or anyone else that has been labeled violent because she refuses to because she sees the game that it plays. Um, right. And we'll disagree with them tactically one way or another um, or whatever, and that's fine. Um, and that's a conversation to be had amongst comrades. But, like, um, you know, she she gets lumped in with being violent just for not, just for not saying that the Black Bloc is illegitimate. And that concludes part four of our six-part interview with Nathan. All of our interviews are available at variousthings.org. This interview is recorded on October 3rd, 2014. six-part interview with Nathan Stickle. Enjoy. Well, I think people have this... I mean, I saw that in Occupy, too. I think people have this view that... Like, they can't separate their own actions from the actions of the oppositional group so like they start to view like if you're going to do something that the police are going to react violent to then you're violent and that's never been the definition of nonviolence like the the, the definition of nonviolence has always been it's only been concerned with the actions of you yourself you know what I mean? Or, or the, the group of you, like, what are you doing? You know, are you throwing rocks at people? Then right. you're probably being violent. Are you standing up in a line in front of the police and might that provoke them to attack you? That's not violent. You know what I mean? Like that's, you're, you're giving the choice to someone else. Like you, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a kind of a false dichotomy because at that point you're, you get into like, well, maybe I shouldn't even go outside today because a cop might shoot me and I don't want to be violent. Like, I mean, that just makes no fucking sense at all. That's just like, other people so have we, choices. Yeah, exactly. Where does that where does that logic lead us? And, and and I feel like there's similar logic in the voting conversation. There's there's a similar logic that's flowing through all of these conversations, and it's fear. Yeah. That somehow Definitely. we're still convinced that whatever happens to us when we stand up, whatever that means, whatever, even if that means like sitting like you know I like the hippies you know on the ground in front of the cops and putting flowers in their you know like. The barrels of their guns, like even that, we we're convinced at that point that if we 
if we do that and the cops attack us, then we deserve it. There's a difference between provocation and you have to be careful about escalation and you have to be careful about provocation. But in in provocation, if you're not provoking someone into a violent act, what you are doing is provoking them into making a choice. And like, I mean, if you look at the way Gandhi worked and that kind of thing, he was basically in every one of these situations provoking these people to make a choice. How are you going to react to us? And it was successful because those choices made were not to be violent, generally. And when they were violent, it kind of strengthened his case. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, <laughs> and and that takes a a commitment to being willing, like not being nonviolent. Basically, means you're willing to get beat and do nothing about it. Right. Um. But it, you're saying something here that reminds me. Um. When Chomsky, when Noam Chomsky was talking about uh, Occupy, what he said probably was the best thing of that he saw a best thing about it was um, that it might not have been a movement so much as a tactic. And he said that for the world that we live in, it did probably the most important thing that could be need to be done right now, and that was it. It broke up the atomization like the uh, reducing of people to individuals and non-connected communities um, in a really positive manner. Like it showed that people could still be organized. And I mean, if you look at kind of the growing, I guess, disaffectedness or feeling of disaffectedness amongst people, it, it seems to coincide with also the decline of labor movements and other organized um groups of folks and I, I don't um, think that's by accident yeah I, I uh, it's interesting sort of at the, the dying down of Occupy like the sort of death knell of it I think was Chicago the NATO oh. summit um, and and I was there uh, and it was awful <laughs> but I I have to speak to Lisa, Lisa Fithian the person I mentioned before um, and she said uh you know, she had her opinions about Occupy and, and, and their tactics and their politics and everything. And she was like, but, you know, one of the best things that I think is going to come out of this is I think we're going to see a new wave of direct action sweeping not across not only North America, but the rest of the world. And I mean, the rest of the world has already been doing it, right? Right. She, she, um, she was like, I think this is like bringing more legitimacy to, to ideas of direct action and people seeing it as a viable option to achieve and, um, and she was right. Not not six months after that, I saw like there was there were waves of immigrant blockades of like ice trucks or ice buses. There, you know, environmental movement was and indigenous movements basically become became one um, against the Keystone Pipeline, and were doing blockades after blockades after blockades. And there were there were fights in the street sometimes um, with the cops, um, and then you know that that escalates over you know two or three years after sort of Occupy is kind of over and done with, um, and then you have Ferguson, yeah, like and and Ferguson has taken it to a whole new level, um, and I, I'm really surprised that there's not enough acknowledging of that on the left, um, and and actually I shouldn't be surprised. <laughs> You know, because this time it's it's a lot of poor black people, um, and 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 that's not 
for, for those of us that are more liberal and, and claim to legitimacy a little bit more, mm. um, that are white, uh, that's messy. Mm-hmm. You know, there were kids there uh, firing guns at police. They were, you know, they were looting stores. They were burning down things. They were, they were taking violent action and they were taking an active role in like escalating conflicts. Um, you know, what do we do with that? There, you could see this sort of like panic among like white activists being like, "Oh, do we? I mean, I don't know." You know, like, you know, sort of like, "Yeah, the Mike Brown thing, like." Yeah, that was terrible, but like, I don't know if I can get down with all the ways that these people are reacting. You know what I mean? Like, um, it, people don't want to get messy. People don't want to get their hands dirty. And, and I saw so-called anti-racists even have some of the same cognitive dissonance. Like, unsure. Like, you know, and they, oh man, when they when they heard that there were some white anarchists down there, maybe uh, maybe like also being violent, um, then it was like fair game. Oh. Well, all the violence is illegitimate because it's just a bunch of white anarchists causing problems. Like, right. You know, like, it's all their fault. How racist is that to say those kids, those, like, the black youth that are down there can't make that fucking decision for themselves and aren't the ones leading the charge? You think, you think there's a significant portion of that group that are white anarchists that are doing that? Come on, man. Yeah. Yeah, that's, you know, that's... I've talked to people that were there, and I've watched interviews with people that were there. and. I've seen very few white faces. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that, that, that there weren't some white people down there doing something stupid. I'm sure there were. White people do stupid shit all the time. You know? And so I'm not trying to say that, like, people don't do stupid shit. But I'm, <laughs> I'm just saying, like, how, how are we... Like, I watched people from a distance, white anti-racists, jump on, like... Hey, other white people, all you white anarchists, stop encouraging people to be violent. It's just like, they weren't the first ones down there throwing rocks at the pigs. Right. They weren't, like, they weren't there. They don't live in Ferguson. The people of Ferguson made that decision. And there's a lot of disagreement in Ferguson on whether they should do that or not. Just let them, make, let them have that conversation themselves. We don't need to be adding to it because we saw a tweet from a person that we don't know. Like, right. We don't to be adding to that conversation. That's not our place. Yeah, it's interesting because the police tried to frame that whole thing when it started getting violent as there's a few bad apples that are angry. And you just, like, I try to, when I hear something like that, I I try to imagine from historical context. You know what I mean? So imagine if, like, in Selma or if in any of the places that the big clashes from the civil and during the civil rights movement happened, I'm sure that line of, of, of speaking was taken. It's just not on YouTube for me to see, you know what I mean? But they're probably just like, Oh, it's just a few people. Or maybe they didn't, maybe they're just so outwardly racist. They were just like, you know, just dismiss the whole um, thing. But there's a really great piece that was going around actually from crime things. that's called outside agitators. Um, mm. and there's a couple of different pieces on that, um, floating around, um, about the historical significance of the outside agitator accusation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it was totally a thing in the civil rights movement. That was huge. That was like, that was the typical, like the, the establishment of the South, even sometimes like black establishments of the South said, it's all these white Yankees and ruckus, like, 
Yankee blacks coming down here and riling up our good Negroes. Like that, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like that, that was totally the conversation that was happening consistently. And of course that wasn't true. And of course, yeah, they were getting help from the North. Of course they were. Uh, what's wrong with that? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like something's happening that's unjust and the people that, and people seek help from somewhere where they've been put down for so long and and all this stuff, you know, and, and they're seeking outside assistance. What's wrong with that? Right. Why does that why does that make their grievances or what they want to do about it any less legitimate because they're looking and feeling connected to people outside of where they are? Like that that whole logic is so flawed and obviously meant to delegitimize anything people are doing. Yeah, because it's basically what it's saying is, you know, when when something like Ferguson happens and I see people being violent, I'm like, okay, this is a real emotional reaction. It's not like a pre-planned thing that happened for three months and they checked it with some manuals and it looked like a good idea. Like this is a pretty like just kind of spontaneous thing. And so you're going to see it be a lot raw, you know, maybe tactically people do stuff that they might regret later or whatever. But um, it, it was a pretty authentic thing that was happening in terms of, um, you know, like these weren't activists that were out in the street you know what i mean like these these were people that they're just you know normal people that work and um you know do their job and probably probably are the same people that are being accused of being you know apathetic towards voting and all the stuff that you were talking about earlier like they're just you know normal american people but they're in an area where they're being basically persecuted and treated as second-class citizens because of the color of their skin and they have the majority of that city. Like it, that city looks more like they do than the people that are policing it. And that's a typical, typical thing to find in the United States. And it's a typical, typical thing that we saw in the civil rights movement. And what I think people are afraid of. So when someone makes an outsider agitator argument, what they're kind of saying is, the rest of the country isn't like this authentically. So clearly this is some tactical people coming down trying to air some grievance they have. You know what I mean? Um, right. And also it's not the actual intent of this community to be like that. And so it's a lie on these two different sides that actually tries to kind of push up some hegemonic idea that we're peaceful and, you know, by nature, unless we have some personal grievance, you know, and that idea of having the personal grievance, you know, like it really didn't surprise, it it really wouldn't surprise me if in Ferguson, some crazy riot exploded and they found one dude and blamed the whole thing on him. Maybe he lost his job somewhere, you know what I mean? Because it's like the more you can singularly, uh, show that something isn't a large view, um, the safer power is from having to confront that people are fucking angry. <laughs> and this does not work for them, you know? You see it, you can see it too if you look, if you pay attention to social, even just social media and the large amount of support that uh, 
people, no matter what they were doing in Ferguson, were getting from even, even if it was just vocal support and not material support and people wasn't inspiring people to take action, um, which, you know, that's the job, in my opinion, of, like, conscious people to agitate for. Right. Um, but, um, no, I, I, like, <laughs> I keep having this conversation because it's really funny. Like, uh, in recent years, I've been, you know, last couple years, I've been so frustrated and alienated from, like, political circles um, that I've just been, like, hanging out a lot more with, like, the people I typically work with or, like, um, whatever, which ends up being a lot of, like, hardcore kids and, like, drunk restaurant workers, you know, and, like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and, um, and most of these people would probably not, and hell, actually, I was led to believe by, you know, certain activists that most of these people are, like, wasteoids that don't have anything good to offer anybody, you know, that they're just, like, getting drunk and they're totally apathetic and whatever. And, and I very quickly found that obviously, obviously to not be true. Right. They're human beings that care about things, just not necessarily the things we think they should care about. Um, right. But, like, you know, besides that, I was surprised by their intelligence and their knowledge around some of this stuff. Um, and, you know, there was resistance to some ideas. And I was talking about this with my friend who's been in the circles of people a lot longer, who's, like, been after this for years and was like, was like Ferguson made things click in a way for some of those people that I've never seen it click with them. She was like, she was like, I had people that have literally said to me in previous years that feminism and racism wasn't really a thing anymore. Mm -hmm. Turn around and start educating people and like having arguments with their friends about white privilege and police brutality. You know, how like, and they were cheering the people of Ferguson on. They were like, fuck yeah loot. Fuck yeah, fight the cops. Like, get yours. You know what I mean? Like, um, and, and like, you know, a large part of that is personal experience. Like, a lot of those people are, like, older now, but, like, were, when they were younger, they were, like, gang jacketed by the cops and have run-ins by the, with the cops for such and such reason, you know? Um, and so there's some level of personal experience that's, that's pushing that. Mm-hmm. Um, but she also was like, you know, I think a large part of it is that um, a bunch of you anarchists that met us through Occupy started hanging out and just becoming friends because, you, you know, you started working at the restaurants we were working at or, like, whatever, you know, con sort of consequential, um, you know, friendships were being formed just from being around each other. Um, and you would have, na you know, conversations that came up naturally about white supremacy and, like, um, police and whatever. And maybe they weren't receptive to it at first, but then something like Ferguson happened, and it clicked. They said, they, you know, they said, I can't believe this is happening. Why is this happening? And they heard what you had to say in previous years about why the things are the way they are. And it clicked for them. You know, and it, and it, and it didn't take much to just kind of push them over that edge to be like, you know what? Yeah, things are really fucked up, and here's why. And that concludes part five of our six-part interview with Nathan Stickle. All of our interviews are available at variousthings.org. This interview is reported on October 3rd, 
welcome back to Various Things. This is part six of our six-part interview with Nathan Stickle. Enjoy. What do you, what do you think is like an, some important or or a important thing that that people can do to kind of reconnect with the power that they have as human beings to change things? Stop thinking that buying shit or not buying shit is going to help. I think that, you know, a lot of times I get really frustrated when I see, like, any discussion, whether it's around issues of immigration or animal rights or, or I don't know, whatever. Uh, for too long, the, the you know, I, man, there were these, these suggestions about, like, how white people can, like, um, help the people in Ferguson. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't a single list. I saw so many of those lists going around for so long. There wasn't a single list that encouraged any white people to stand up when they see an instance of police harassment happening in front of them. Not a single one. All of them were like, talk to your friends about institutionalized racism. Uh, you know, donate money to the bail fund. I mean, all good things. I, w- I would never discourage people from doing those things. I'm not saying, like, those are bad things to do, obviously. Like, you should totally do them. But, like, um, but it was the end of the list. I was like, so wait, I, I could donate, like, you know, I could donate five bucks to a bail fund and, like, uh, make sure to talk to my friends about racism, and that's it. I mean, I guess I guess there there are people that like haven't even been doing that much, you know, and and that's fine. I, I would much rather that people do something than nothing. But like, um, but what about those of us that already talk about? There's plenty of us that talk about institutionalized racism all the time. We don't necessarily talk about it in the best way. We don't necessarily, you know, we're not perfect. I'm not trying to put anyone on a pedestal. But like, um. I'm so sick of seeing, and this is, you know, sick of myself, too. I'm complacent in it all the time. Uh, Nothing's going to change until people do something about it, concretely, to intervene in what's happening. Um, And that means more than just talking, you know? Mm -hmm. I think it's really important to talk and study and read and gain as much knowledge as you can on anything. It's not just politics. Like, that that's something that I think should be a lifetime pursuit for every individual, and they should pursue the things that interest them, absolutely. Um, but why do, why do we make lists basically encouraging people to be decent human beings and think that's, like, going to help or, like, going to change things significantly? You know what I mean? Like, I think the most vital thing people can do is to... What are, you know, what are they passionate about already? What are they interested in? Mm-hmm. And who's around them that has even remotely similar interests that they already interact with could be coworkers. You don't know until you talk to them about it. You know, like, um, find something and act. You know, and I don't mean just do something and it's satisfactory. Be smart about it. Think about it. Talk about it. Figure out what you're comfortable with and what you can do for sure, but and start humbly, you know, don't don't think that you got all the answers, but but do something. Act, you know, like I don't know, I'm I'm so frustrated with this like 
contentment to remain morally pure by having the right views and saying the right things, but what do you do? You go to work every day, you come home, you watch Netflix, you, like, hang out with your friends at the bar, like, or whatever the case may be, and maybe you do cooler things, like go on hikes and, and like, all that stuff, the stuff that I would maybe, like, find to be, like, cooler. But what what is making you affect the world really concretely um, to, like, change things? Especially those of us who are more privileged. The only way we're going to stop, like, we can sit around and feel guilty about that privilege all we want, um, but until we do something that interferes in those power dynamics, it's never going to change, and we're going to be sitting there feeling guilty all the time, but still privileged, still, like, be living off of the backs of other people, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and until we risk something, until we, like, confront it, it's never going to change. So yeah. I think that's the most important thing. Um, so whether you're acting alone or whether you're acting with a group of people, I would I would say a group of people would be more effective, but um, do something, you know? I don't know. I, do something. Like, that's, that's my biggest point. Uh, was there any stuff that you're working on that you wanted to talk about as far as, or things that you wanted to mention? Um, well, Team Fest is this weekend on Saturday. Cool. Um, and a print collective I'm a part of called Broken Window Press is going to have a table. We've got tons of literature, and we're going to have some T-shirts that encourage mischief. Um, so those are cool. Um, and please come support Zine Fest in general because there's going to be tons of rad zinesters and, like, distros and stuff there. Um, all people, like, trying to, you know, keep it DIY and keep it, like, keep it legit, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And so that should always be supported. The organizers are all great. Um, and Zine Fest is great. Uh, but larger than that, um, uh, I'm part of founding a new Richmond Jericho chapter here in Richmond um, and uh, along with some other folks uh, um, we're a movement organization that works to support and get amnesty for political prisoners and prisoners of war in the United States Um, and yeah there's a Facebook page right now we're we're real new just a few months so um, we don't have a heavy internet presence yet, uh, working on fixing that, but right now there is a Facebook page, Richmond Jericho, um, and so you can get plugged in there immediately. We have a about once a month or once every five weeks, we have a letter-writing brunch where we write to political prisoners, um, and we'll give a presentation on a different political prisoner or a different subject matter, a different prison uprising. Um, November 2nd. We are marking Asada Shakur Liberation Day when she was liberated from prison in Fuleta, Cuba. Um, and that's going to be a big presentation on what we're doing about political prisoners nationally mm-hmm. and internationally. Um, so, yeah, you should check us out uh, on Facebook. And we need more people and we need more help. Um, so, and that's a very simple thing you can do if you look up 
any of the anarchist Black Cross or Jericho chapters, they have addresses for writing to political prisoners um, and politicized prisoners. Um, so that's one simple thing you can do as an individual, maybe one day over coffee in the morning or something, is just write a short, sweet letter to to a prisoner that, like, you know, maybe fought for something you're passionate about. Um, make sure that they know that you're thinking about them, that they, like, were willing to sacrifice their freedom for something they believed in is, is uh, something that should never go unrecognized. Um, so, uh, and you really don't know how much a letter can help. Even, even if it's short, sweet, just encouraging um, people inside knowing that there are people thinking about them outside is, is really important. So um, just take the time to do that. Um, yeah, I mean, that's the main thing. Cool. And was there an address or anything for the uh, for the press that you were working with? What was it called again, the one that you're going to be at Zine Fest with? Uh, Broken Window. Um, Broken Window? Well, we, we, like to, we like to keep it a little... Uh, uh, DL, we do have a we do have a um, email. It's uh, brokenwindow at riseup.net. Um, okay. Have it, if you have any things you would like to see printed and, and distributed through the city or something, or, or like maybe a pamphlet you've worked on yourself, um, you send it our way. And that concludes part six of our six-part interview with Nathan Stickle. I had a great time talking with Nathan. I would like to thank Nathan for taking the time to talk with me. I hope you enjoyed listening as well. All of our interviews are available at variousthings.org. This interview is recorded on October 3rd, 2014. Thanks for listening.